0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, as I said briefly there, in this series, we're inviting people who work in or with fashion. So, I think it'd be great if we could set the scene by you explaining your profession and what you do.
0: Yeah, that's really a hard question (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I do lots of things. I, I always say that I'm an academic first. That's how I started my working life. So, I'm an academic in the sense that I read and think and write about ideas, and I work in philosophy and cultural studies and literature. Um, and then I'm also uh, someone who reviews. I'm a cultural reviewer, perhaps, so I um, review books and shows and films as part of my living. So that means engaging with the cultural life um, and sharing, trying to describe what those things are in a really precise way, not just whether they're good, but giving you a sense of the things that you're looking at or reading um, and being able to write about that really precisely. And then lastly, I'm a broadcaster, which has been the most unexpected turn in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess all of those things are connected. They are about being immersed in culture and finding ways to think and write and speak about them. So those are the three things I do. Um, And in recent years, I've been writing about dress, yeah.
1: More on many of those points (laughs) later as we go along. But as we go in, you've kind of set up perfectly for me there, the fact that your work goes in these different streams and strands. Um, Even before getting to that, you look at different cultural subjects and art forms and people and places. You go from Keats to Medea to Madonna. Um, (laughs) Is that range of interests and expertise something that you've really consciously cultivated or did you imagine yourself being attached to one era or area?
0: That's amazing that I go from Medea to Madonna. That should be like <laughs> that the title. Like that. Yeah, the title <laughs> of my autobiography. Next um, book. Yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, um, I don't think anybody can anticipate the kinds of career that you end up having when you follow your interests. And do you know when Midsummer Night's Dream? There's a character in Midsummer Night's Dream called Bottom, right? <laughs> and Bottom um, wants to play all the parts. Remember, there's a play that the mechanicals put on a play and Bottom wants to play all the parts. And it's, like, really gauche of him. But I always think I'm Bottom. I want to play all the parts. Like, I want to be academic. I want to be the writer. I want to be the reviewer. And I don't just want to be writing about great classic literature. Um, I want to be writing about Madonna. And, in fact, the beginning of the book, I talk about four. I picked four artefacts, um, Van Gogh's boots, um, uh, what else? Uh, I can't even remember what else. Uh, I can remember. Um, Van Gogh's boots, um, In the Mood for Love, the Wong Kai war film, the dress, the Chong salmon in, in that. Um, and what else? Oh, um, uh, the, the the denim jacket from Madonna. And those are all sort of different art forms and I guess different levels of art form. And I wanted to be able to start in that way to make my reader think my God, all of those things are of philosophical interest. There are ideas in all of these things. And there are ways to read and think about them that might yield something serious and interesting. Um, yeah. So I never felt, I did have a career. I started as a, as a, a, a conventional academic working in a specific period. But, I don't know what happened. (laughs) Something made me just think that the world is so much more interesting. And things are connected. Mm. I think if you work in philosophy particularly, I always say I'm not a historian. Sometimes people describe me as a culture historian and I'm decidedly not a historian. I think what historians do is remarkable and extraordinary. But I'm not a historian. I'm someone who works in ideas. And the weird thing about ideas is that they're woven through so many things Mm. across so much time. Um, And I wanted to have the freedom... To work between all of those things, so yeah, you can't predict <laughs> um, where you end up. But yeah. this, my my work and this book does does
1: roam enormously. Yeah. yeah, and there's real joy in that. So you've kind of spoken about the idea of cultural life and getting something to yield and. identifying and exploring those different connections and that kind of leads me on to my next point is I'm going to do something a bit controversial within my own role in institutions I'm going to generalise about academics but I find that they tend to kind of fall into two camps, there's those of us who find our subject and we protect it and we want to dig into it and feel a certain sense of ownership and there's others where it's about communication and sharing and the joy is in finding the thing, finding out about the thing and finding ways of telling other people about it Um, and I would put you into that second camp of kind of driven communicators, do you think that's a fair um, assumption? And does that relate to that idea of, of yielding and connecting?
0: Yeah, I, um, we're just a really strange bunch being <laughs> academics. Um, I think there's so much merit in working on that small thing in a very particular, precise, delicate way. Um, and I think that there is also... And understanding that the things that you devote your life to, your brain, you let you devote your brain to could be meaningful to other people Mm. as well. And I, um, I probably am, like you, I probably am in that second category where I want to tell everybody about the amazing things I'm reading and the things that I'm understanding from them, uh, or the the beautiful things I'm looking at and why they're meaningful. Um, but it also seems to me something to do with being a writer. Particularly if you are somebody who works in language, one of the things that you want to do is pe- be able to capture your particular experience really, really precisely and in a way that makes somebody else know what it feels like to put a hand in a pocket and find something unexpected or, as I say in my book, what it feels like to put on your warm coats, yeah. you know, the first cold day of September. Yeah, I, love I know what that experience is, and I wanted to be able to write it so that anybody could pick it up. Not anybody who specifically loved clothes, mm. or even philosophy, or reading, mm. but could just read that and see, yes, I know exactly what that thing is. Yeah. And I'm certainly that kind of academic. I want you to see how I see the world and feel it the way that I feel it too. Yeah.
1: I really like the idea of feelings as a communication tool and being able to relate something in a sensory level and that's so perfect for the study of dress and there's something we'll probably explore when we talk about the book in more detail but yeah the idea of cultural life and character and feeling as a function within your work is really really strong and um, so you're a warm and atten- um, attentive interviewer on Front Row and I feel like being able to read people must be a really important part of your work and um, I read your Queen Mary's research profile and, oh, yeah. and academic <laughs> profiles can often be quite clear-cut and they list uh you know kind of work and research areas but yours invites people to knock on your door and says that you'll be there with a tepid cup of tea at the yes. ready yeah. um, which I really <laughs> liked um because again it kind of sparks the idea that you're as much about connection and conversation and that you maybe want to cultivate a culture of, of uh, exchange and things is that yeah. something that you've tried to pull through
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I always have a tepid cup of tea on the go because I'm constantly (laughs) drinking tea and I'm always distracted by, usually by something on Twitter or like somebody's coats walking down the corridor and my tea gets cold. I've got actually some students are here today. (laughs) Um, uh, which I feel very moved by. Um. And I think they did probably come to my office for a tepid cup of tea once in a while. (laughs) I think, um, so being a warm and attentive, you're a warm and attentive interviewer. I think it's... um, I don't know, I spent so much of my life trying to be an intellectual, thinking I was a clever person. You know, I'm this person that could read really hard philosophy and understand really obscure poetry. And then I sort of worked out that actually I'm not that clever. All I am is I'm quite a good listener. And that makes you a really good broadcast. That makes you a really good teacher because you allow the the person in the room with you to have a dignity and to your attention says to that person, and it's with the same with objects too, when you attend to an amazing cerise-coloured jumpsuit, your attention says to that person, to that object, you are infinitely interesting, and there is, there, you are infinitely interesting and complex, and there are ways in which you are trying to be understood, and I'm going to do my best to understand you. So, yeah, being warm and attentive, I think, is like an intellectual strategy. Mm. I think, in the end, clever people are the ones who are good listeners. Mm. Yeah. And having a warm, I mean, you know what it's like when you're interviewing somebody, you want them to, um, you want to get under their skin. So much of my book is about getting under the skin of clothes, what the people are like underneath the things they wear and what service their garments, their objects are doing for them. And when you interview someone, you want to find out what really makes you tick, that there might be things that you'll say on the surface Uh, in an interview you might interview someone really famous or someone who's been on the circuit and they'll they have a rehearsed answer because they know the question you're going to ask and what you want is to get them to say something that they didn't know that they knew Mm -hmm. to turn a corner Um, and yeah you can only do that by being warm and attentive yeah yeah, and um, trying to get
1: under their skin. Absolutely. So it becomes an interaction rather than a recital. Yeah. And I can imagine, or I find from my own experience, that dress is a really perfect subject for that kind of approach. And I loved what you said about dignity within that and giving both the subject and the listener and the audience or the person that you're exchanging with that, their fair share of that. And I think dress can be a real kind of game changer or opener for that because we all have our opinions. We all read dress every day, whether we've considered it as an academic subject or not. Was
0: that a draw for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I hadn't thought about it in the terms of dignity, but dignity is one way of putting it. By which I mean, um, I have this sense that... People can look amazing. Lots of people in this audience do look amazing. (laughs) And people can look quite ordinary. But all of those things are interesting and evocative and alluring in their own way. But why do we walk through the world pretending, almost pretending that people aren't wearing clothes and it doesn't matter what they're wearing? And it seemed to me, no, my God, that person in that rust-coloured T-shirt sitting in the front row, Andrew, is so interesting and yielding. and That colour is so peculiar. And how do I find the precise word that will get that thing? Um, And And why is my eye, why is it jabbing at the corner of my eye as I'm talking? Like the the things that you're wearing... can be beautiful and they can be uh, incredibly put together, but they've also been made by somebody. Mm. They've passed through so many hands before they've come to you. And now in this moment, you're wearing it and somehow I'm seeing it. And in that moment, I'm susceptible to you. I'm saying I'm responsive to the person you are and the thing that you're wearing. And that thing deserves a kind of dignity, the dignity of my attention and my language, which is what I wanted to do in writing a book about clothes, which everybody wears and not everybody thinks about. Yeah.
1: Again, I love the application of language and the role of writing in the communication. So when did... So that sounds like a very personal pursuit and kind of awareness, hyper-awareness of clothes and their role around you. When did that translate or kind of evolve into a professional interest and a research subject?
0: Yeah, uh, it it happened... I I think that I didn't realise that it was that um, I, I, I think I didn't realize that I saw the world any differently to anybody else, mm. particularly. I thought that everybody was um, associated people with particular colors and textures and garments. And I think lots of us do, but when I started this project, I realised no, that my my memory is really peculiar, yeah. and so my I'm I'm synesthetic, so I have I often associate colour and texture with people, and I have a real people who know me really well. Some people are in this audience. Know me really well. Know that I have a really peculiar memory, and so I very often remember things like the first thing a person was wearing when I met them. <laughs> I will, I'll remember that. I'm looking at, so I'm looking at Tamara, my really good friend, and I'm remembering like a kind of Czech dress that she has with pockets. She often has dresses with pockets, and I always associate her with like a kind of capable pocket hands plunged in pockets. It's oh, a gorgeous phrase, um, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I, I mean, I can remember, like, I can remember meeting my husband for the first time, and lots of people have that memory, but I remember just how ludicrous he looked in this like, blue barber, <laughs> blue barber jacket, and this tweed coat that didn't quite fit him because he's quite big. And like this slightly kind of rustic country look, except that he lived in Marlborough with girls called Annabelle and Alice. And it seemed to be like totally inappropriate. (laughs) Um, But I remember exactly the things he was wearing and I can remember the smell of that coat. And I can remember being, my earliest memory is being being about two and being at my nursery school or some sort of childcare. And putting on a pair of floral pants to go in the paddling pool. (laughs) Um, all of my memories, early yeah. memories, are, are textile-based. And that's something to do with how, the how way that my mind. senses work and the way that my brain is wired. And that meant that I started to gather all of these ways of understanding the world. And when I started to write a book, I wanted to write a philosophical book about our experience of the world. It's called phenomenology in philosophy. That's the kind of discipline I work in. I'm interested in how everyday experience is important. And it seems so obvious to me that the way that I encounter the world is very often about texture and color garments Mm. and that I could write about that, that my whole life was about people's clothes in an embarrassing way that, you know, I couldn't help but comment on what you were wearing when I met you and I would try to stop, but it was there in my head, Yeah.
1: yeah an enduring drive and it's a brilliant product of it with us here today and um, I really enjoyed an article that you wrote and I feel like again it's a fitting context in which to bring it up on what we wear in the underfunded <laughs> university um, and within it you talk about the kind of conflict between the archetype of the academic um, and you know elbow patches and certain forms of tailoring with To the the busyness and the stress and the low pay of some (laughs) academic roles and things. And I really enjoyed uh, reading that, partly for the wit. And I think the wit in your writing is really clear. And you talk about feeling a lot, but you also evoke feelings in your reader. But also because I think a lot gets said, or it certainly does when you work at a fashion college, about the way that students dress and the way that students use their clothes to kind of embody the experience of being a student and yeah. I definitely think on Freshers Week you can see the pilgrimage element of I finally got it here and I've made it to fashion college or art school yeah. and here I am I'm living it um, do you think that academics go through a similar mindset? When the, <laughs> were, did you become more conscious of your own clothes when you were writing this?
0: Um, no I think I really underthought that. that um, <laughs> I would have to I, I hadn't registered that I would have to think about what I wear yes. every day for the rest of my life <laughs> after writing a book about clothes. Um, and I really regret that. Um, but the I do think that thing about, if you teach, if you're, uh, uh, I, I, Francis Corner, who's the head of this college, the outgoing head of this college, is a really important person to me. And I know you've interviewed her too for this yeah. podcast. And I remember when I first, Francis was an amazing kind of black, She's a big Yoji Yamamoto fan, black tailored outfits, suits often. She's incredibly stylish and um, one of the most wonderful people in the world. And I remember when I first met her, she said, LCF is... Uh, I think of it as a women's college. There are 90%, 90% of the students are female. And I remember when I first started coming here to use the research library, um, it's like the nicest smelling research library in your world because there are just like <laughs> Korean girls and this amazing perfume floating around. And I felt really shambolic next to them, like running in with my glasses and like plasters and three book bags and, um, you know, trying to research this book. Um, but one of the things I... you you get from working in a university at Queen Mary and being around here at LCF2 is that you're exposed to young people and young people are really remarkable. And I would go to give lectures and I would look up to this theater of 300 people and often young women and they would be dressed amazingly. And also, they would be dressed amazingly different every yeah. day, and I was dazzled by how beautiful they looked and how stylish and composed they were and I never felt that I was stylish or composed at that age, but also really troubled by fast fashion as lots of us are, like at how quickly we work through our garments um, so that was that, that, that concern was in the back of my mind about what we do about um, fast fashion, but in terms of academics. I sort of make a joke in that article about how stuffy academics are but I, but also it seems to me like, academics are posers. We are mm. posers at PowerPoint. Like, there is a kind of showmanship involved yeah. with being and performing, right? Um, and it seemed to me ludicrous that lots of academics pretended not to care about what they wore. But, you know, they would be wearing, like, very smart little Cuban heels mm. underneath their um, tailored suits. Or, and I remember being taught by, like, remarkable-looking people. I remember um, uh, uh, an older male professor who would, at Cambridge, he would wait at the door, he would hold the door open at the lecture theatre as you would run in really late <laughs> for your um, lecture on... T- it was always T.S. Eliot, so it was that sort of thing. <laughs> and he would—he had a Homburg hat. Imagine wearing a Homburg hat in, like... What was it, 1999, that's when I matriculated at Cambridge? A Homburg hat. And at the end, he would pick up his, his briefcase and march out. And it was like the Allies had won only yesterday and we were still <laughs> on rations, that sort of thing. Um, and I remember a, a female lecturer... Who would have been the age I am now? But at the time, seemed really old to me. She was like a <laughs> radical Marxist Renaissance scholar, and she would—I um, think she'd just gone through a really unhappy divorce. She had a nose ring, and did yoga, and had just gone through an unhappy breakup. And she had a much younger boyfriend who was a plumber, and he would collect her on his motorbike at the end <laughs> of your supervisions. And she had this lilac leather jacket which is as remarkable as it sounds, a lilac leather jacket with a silver zip. And I can hear the zip going up. You know, at the end of the supervision, they should jump on the, like, remarkable yeah. people. I mean, yet we pretended that we didn't care about clothes, that we were so much more in the world of ideas and the life of the mind. But here were these people wearing really astonishing things. Yeah,
1: still playing into codes. You very skillfully wove me away from your own clothes within that. I saw what you did (laughs) there. So perhaps now we can move on to your object choice. Yeah. And we can draw it back in. So this part of the conversation is led by the object that's been chosen. So perhaps you could first introduce it. Tell me what it is, who it's by, when it's from, and if it's a personal or professional piece. Okay. So I
0: picked a bag. This isn't just my handbag that's been sat here. This is my (laughs) object. So this is a grey tote shoulder bag something it's sort of um it's a kind of strange color I think it's beautiful. um it's a I think it's cadet gray I think that's what it's called cadet gray but it's like a, sl- a lighter slate gray yeah. um it's calfskin leather it's Alexander McQueen and it has the thing I like best about it it has um a brass sip and at the very bottom it has five brass studs and it's been bashed quite a bit at the back as well, so I'm not going to show you that. But I chose a bag rather than anything else because, um, I think you're like this. I'm a bag person. You and I met for coffee. And we both ended up with massive bags yes. and ugly bags. This is a nice bag, but I've got really ugly tote bags. Um, uh, I bought a tote bag with me today as well, like <laughs> from the V&A, like yeah. that's got holes in it and it's like hasn't been washed in six yeah. months. Um, and I bought this really beautiful bag about, about two years ago. I bought it secondhand, um, partly because I'd been writing about McQueen in my book. And I didn't write about very many designers, per se, but he, I, him I wanted to talk about because he's more than a fashion designer for me. He's a fully realized person and a thinker. Um, he's a really fascinating, difficult person. And I wanted to write about his vision of womanhood. So McQueen was really important to me. Um, And I wanted to pick a bag because um, there's a moment in my book where I talk about the kind of person I am. And I am the kind of person who um, takes lots of bags wherever I go, (laughs) stuff them, full of inappropriate stuff, and yet, can never find the thing I need, <laughs> um, and that is my life every day. I'm constantly like rummaging mm. in a bag, like if mentally, if any of you think of me, that's how you should think of me. I'm like, furiously <laughs> looking for a pen, a key, a lipstick in a bag, and it seemed to me not just like a quirk of my character. It just seemed to me to say something about the, the kind of person you are, the world into which you go, how prepared or unprepared you are for it, and. Your efforts at finding the resources you need in a moment, Um, yeah. So I picked a bag and I picked a McQueen bag. Yeah, yeah,
1: but it's great. I like the searching through because before you spoke about searching for links and connections and and meaning, and then and then now you kind of. Applied it to a more practical purpose of hunting through for the little the aids that you need to get you through the day. I wanted to touch on the element about McQueen as well because yeah, it was really stuck me how often he came up in the book and quite a lot of the time in the book, which again we're going to talk about in more detail shortly. Um, you talk about the feeling of fashion and of putting yeah. something on and that sensory element. And with McQueen, a lot of the segments that you kind of quote him in, um, it's him talking about how he wants a woman to feel when he, they wear his designs, but also how he wants other people to feel. He wants the viewer to be intimidated and for them to read the wearer of his clothes as a certain kind of woman, and for that to be empowering um, and that really interested me that you know clothing not just as a meaning maker but as a, a, a prompter of feeling in other mm. people is uh, yeah yeah,
0: yeah um, so two things um, well, let me start with the meaning feeling distinction that you draw out, and then I 'll get back to McQueen, but. Um, I think there is a way of reading fashion particularly and clothes um, as meaningful or about meaning or meaning things, garments meaning things. And in a way my book kind of is a riposte to that, or is it like angles to that? Mm. I think um, I'm I'm not that interested in the psychology of clothes. Sometimes people think that that's what I'm doing, a kind of psychology of clothes, but I'm not that interested in the psychology of clothes. I think other people do that really, really well. And I'm not a historian that's thinking about the historical meaning. You're right that I'm thinking about what it feels like to... I had to promote my book to a bunch of booksellers. B, my editor is here, and she sent me to this mad collection of booksellers, and they were trying to work out what the book was about, and I said to them talk to them about putting on the coat on a winter's day and I could see them thinking oh it's about women's stuff and then I was like no remember that feeling when you go into the pub and you've ordered this delicious thirst quest quenching pint mm. and you put your hand in your pocket to pluck out the two pounds or the three pounds that you need to pay for it and you don't find it there and your heart sinks and you remember you've left your wallet at home and that moment, that's what I'm trying to get. And I could see that that's the moment where they got it, the feeling of having a pocket and the feeling of when your pocket fails you. And then, and I could see that was the Eureka moment, they got it, but then they said, oh, but which pubs are you going to that you can pay for a pint for three pounds? And I was like, yes, that is, <laughs> yes, that, that is, getting that is the point. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to write about the feeling of stuff because I thought everybody could engage with that, even mm. if they weren't interested in fashion per se, that, that everybody had that experience of putting something on or the feeling of um, not having what you need in a particular moment mm. or needing to get somewhere and not being able to do so in the right, All of those things, those feelings were really important. And I thought everybody could relate to that. And McQueen, he does come up everywhere in the book. I try to be restrained about it because I didn't want it to be a McQueen book. And there have been such tremendous McQueen books in recent years. And amazing McQueen scholars at LCF Mm. too who've been really inspiring to me. Um, Yoji Yamamoto is the other designer that comes up too for me because... What the most interesting fashion film of all is the one by Vin Vendors about Yoji Yamamoto. Never mind, never mind uh, devil, whatever, uh, <laughs> there's what Prado. Pra- yeah. <laughs> the Yoji Yamamoto film by Vin Vendors is the, the best fashion film ever. But McQueen, I think he's a really difficult person for lots of people, but uh, he is about tooling up women, um, about making them feel formidable, and he's also about the vulnerability of women. About So one of the dresses I talk about is a, a green and bronze lace dress that looks I say I think it looks like it's caught the edge of a candle Mm. that it's burnt and that um, this sacheting model is on a precipice and that um, there's something really vulnerable about this woman that she's been violated in some way and I think people find McQueen really uncomfortable for that reason because of what he seems to do to women But I think I see that he identifies with women. He identifies with the vulnerability he sees in women. Um, And I think one of the really difficult, perverse things he says, or he means, is that being a woman is often about being a victim or being subject to certain kinds of violence, if not violence itself. And if that happens to you, then one of the ways you can respond to it, and maybe it isn't a healthy way to respond to it, But one of the ways you can do is wear that experience of vulnerability with a kind of defiance. And he sort of says, I think he says something really difficult. He says that there's nothing anybody could do to you worse than you do to yourself, Mm. which is a really awful thing to say, and yet also weirdly powerful. And he says that because he's been a victim, he understands what it means to be subject to violence. Um, So I see like this profound identification between the women he's imagining and his own experience. And that makes him a really profound, as well as, you know, a brilliant designer Mm. for me.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I like the kind of the agency of making something that could be adornment into armour and the assumption, or again, the dignity and respect that you're in effect offering the wearer that you think that she knows what she's doing and she knows how it's going to make her feel when she puts on that garment. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Within that, you spoke about vulnerability, and that links back to your earlier point of I loved what you said about when your pocket or when your bag fails you. And that's something that comes up in the book, and it particularly comes up in the chapter on um, pockets, purses, and handbags and suitcases, I think it is. Yeah. Um, and the idea of we have clear codings around clothes and particularly when it's someone that you're intimate with and close to you have anticipations of what they have what they wear where they wear it and why and what might be lurking within their handbag and therefore sometimes those items can be really disorientating when someone wears something that you don't think matches with them or when there's something um yeah, beyond those boundaries with them. and I think that's really beautiful describing and relate it with to uh, some personal relationships and to it. So you've spoken about disorientating yourself, but that can relate to those relationships as well. Um, so perhaps from here, we could have your extract <laughs> from that oh, chapter, please, okay. speaking of storytelling and persists. I'm hmm. going to give
0: you a reading. Um, and this is the chapter on bags. Yes, please. Uh, uh, two, seven...
1: So yeah. we both got um you've got a few post-it notes, but we both come <laughs> authentically rampact of I'm, films, so. <laughs> I'm so impressed that
0: anybody that is the weird thing about writing a book. I was at book signing and there are lots of people here who've written books, but then someone comes to talk to you about your book and you make eye contact and you know they want something from you, a moment of meaningful engagement, you try and give it, you sign the book, and then they get up and walk away, and they take the book with them, and that's so bewildering, <laughs> when you've been working on something on your own, pretty much, for seven, mm. six, seven years, and then they're going off, and yeah. you don't know what they're going to do with your book, <laughs> and your ideas. Um, okay, so this is page 276, and it's about bags. I'll skip a little bit as well to get to the end of it. Um, okay, um, Okay, Uh, this is about the suitcase. The suitcase, yeah. And yet we are never really readied for life, even those of us who pack carefully, anticipating every eventuality. The immigrant and the refugee know what most travellers only learn en route, which is that we pack our bags for a life so unpredictable we can hardly account for the next day. Most of us travel and find that our bags are an encumbrance, an embarrassment of our riches. We trip irritably over other people's trunks and wheelies in our hurry through airport lounges and train stations. We long to get to places swiftly and lightly, silently judging those laden travellers who accumulate stuff. Tourists who have overspent their baggage bulging with goods. We roll our eyes at underwashed wayfarers with towering backpacks and sleeping mats rolled under their arms. But the stories of how and why we travel are told in our luggage, and it can be the sum of all we have, all we are in strange places. Still, somehow the traveler's bag remains the object of our imagination and whimsy. When the Browns discover a bear standing forlornly at Paddington Station, stout in red wellies and felt hat, a blue duffel coat securely toggled, and a battered brown case in hand, they know to extend to him their kindness. Please look after this bear, thank, thank you, reads the tag that dangles from his sleeve, echoing the images of child evacuees shuttled from wartime London with labels around their necks and worldly possessions packed in small cases. The sympathetic Browns take him home to 32 Windsor Gardens off Harrow Road, this friendly bear from deepest, darkest Peru who comes to them clutching only a scuffed suitcase. They read his need and offer up their resources. He is the traveler who possesses little and so elicits benevolence. Later, the suitcase reveals itself full of mischief, more capacious than it would outwardly seem, complete with a secret compartment for storing marmalade. And Paddington too, with his aptitude for adventure and incorrigible curiosity, proves himself a natural explorer, the stranger who can make his home wherever he stops with his suitcase. His modern counterpart is Dora the Explorer, the fearless bilingual Latina, who moves as fluently between English and Spanish as she does from desert to rainforest. I watch my small nieces follow her on the screen, their large eyes unblinking, transfixed and hopeful. They have faith in Dora, who is always equipped with her purple backpack, her fingers curled around the straps, fastened firmly over her shoulders. They see different countries, entire continents, through her questioning eyes, and every new place is safe, accessible, full of friends yet to be made. Dora capably navigates the globe, collecting objects and allies, solving puzzles and fending off Swiper, the thieving fox. Unlike Swiper, she easily discerns the difference between that which is hers and that which belongs to others. And this understanding imbues her with a moral clarity. When she sets out on her quest, she winningly invites the viewer to join her. But Dora already has everything she needs to get to her destination. She has wisdom and unfaltering confidence. She has the fearlessness of the curious child whom she herself is designed to address. Paddington and Dora are light travellers, beloved by children too small to own much stuff, and yet young enough to store deep, internal, imaginative worlds. Not worldly enough to worry about money, and yet prone to prize their few possessions." Their rummaging fingers are barely capable of steady grasp and are connected to a faculty of memory too underdeveloped to recall most acts of storage. And so they might remind us that what we place in pockets and store away in suitcases matters nothing, really, that all things we own are easily lost, outgrown, abandoned, discarded along the way. What counts is not that we keep such things at all, but that we come to learn that the world will make demands of us, that we might need to dig deep and call upon our inward resources, be readied for when that moment arises, knowing that we will not be found wanting.
1: Gorgeous, that really gave us a really gorgeous glimpse into the book and to the different strands and again, the feelings and the preparations that allows you to denote. Um, so perhaps from there we can weave into looking at it in more detail. So what was the drive behind writing the book?
0: Um, a number of things. Some of the stuff I talked about, the, having that strange memory and that disposition and wanting to write a book about everyday life that might be under, kind of apprehensible to, to other people. Um, and then just a sense of crisis about about the ecological crisis and the labor crisis around fashion um, and the Round Plaza disaster happened. In Dakhir, my mum was Bangladeshi, um, she sewed as when I was growing up, um, uh, those w- women, largely women who were killed in that disaster, um, their faces were sort of ethnically, genetically recognisable to me, and I had this pang about my own wardrobe, I went through my 20s wildly buying stuff, trying to fill some hole in my life, and um, I don't know that I ever did fill it. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to fill a hole in life. But I was overcome by this sense of deep, profound guilt about how much stuff I'd accumulated and what to do about it. And I know all the things that we're supposed to do. I think all of us know, like we know about the environmental crisis, that we're supposed to fly less and eat less meat, and we're supposed to buy things that will last longer and uh, buy vintage and recycle, um, uh, buy things that are made of sustainable fabrics and not Plastic. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do. But I don't think that we know why we should do it in a funny way. And I wanted people to think about the place of clothes in their life. And if they could care about the things that they wear, then maybe they would care about the people who made them mm. too. I wanted to, to say that in the book. Almost... Almost... Quietly, as an aside, look at all these places in culture where clothes are. They are everywhere. They mean something. How profound, serious, funny, powerful, loaded, freighted with love they are care about our clothes let's care about the people who made them too
1: so that is sort of the compulsion of the book yeah that's yeah fantastic. so feel more think more take more responsibility so yeah. call for action as well as for feeling and um, you also say that you wanted to create a philosophy of clothes is, is that what you've just encapsulated or is that something further because I really liked what you said earlier about distinguishing this from a psychology of clothes yeah so yeah perhaps you elaborate on that
0: I think more. that's what I meant that I, I I sort of ended up um writing the book that I couldn't find. And I spoke to lots of people at LCF and in fashion studies um, and in philosophy. Uh, And they were doing really amazing, interesting things. Histories of fashion, sustainability and the ethics of fashion. There was a kind of psychology of fashion. There was a semiotics... Bart is, someone, Bart is someone really important to me I was interested in all those things but what I really wanted was the phenomenology, mm. the feeling of wearing clothes so that, that suddenly you would be almost intolerably sensitive to the things you were wearing, that you wouldn't be able to pull open the door of your wardrobe without a flash of recognition or thought that it could never be this careless gesture and that book wasn't there I mean there were books that I liked but that book wasn't there and I thought that's what I wanted to do. And also, philosophy is the most interesting discipline to me. It's you know the place where we wrestle with the most profound ideas. And it's a hard discipline. It's the hardest discipline. And I thought, why not use the hardest stuff I've ever read in my life? Bloody <laughs> Heidegger, Nietzsche, <laughs> Bits of Derrida, Freud. Like the hardest stuff that I've ever had to think about and find ways to make it speak to clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah because they deserve it. They're they're not flippant, they're not stupid, it's not frivolous to to care about clothes. We we could think about them in the most, the most intellectually challenging ways.
1: So, again, dignity and reapplication and connection. Um, when I'm preparing to interview someone in this series, sometimes I try and cheat and <laughs> guess what their object choice oh, is going to be. Yeah. So when I was reading your book, I sort of was eyeing things oh, up. Yeah. And there's a section on think? the dress. Oh, the um, and I really liked that as a kind of capitalised item. Um, yeah. And a, you had a really nice phrase of it as a project of possibility in someone's life, not just their wardrobe. Yeah. Um, so I'd love it if you could read another extract. In the
0: book. Sure. That, uh, it, that's at the end, isn't it? Of that yeah. Can't find it. Uh, oh, I apparently caught it. seventy-seven. Oh, thank you. Yes. Okay. So this is after actually talking about very hard philosophers. Elaine no. um, Siksu talking about Sonia Rikiel dress and how the perfect dress for Sonia uh, for Elaine Siksu is a Rikiel dress and it's about it should make you feel like you're stepping into water that you're dressed in water, she says. Um, So, um, some of us own such a dress, an exceptional thing, lovingly preserved and only carefully exposed to the light of day. Others of us reach for its possibility and find in every new purchase a pretender, sensing it forever slipping from our grasp or gaze, like the faces of the dead that come to us only in dreams. Perhaps the power of the right dress must of necessity come only rarely like a hard-won self-knowledge, the shining truth of which cannot stand too much scrutiny, its brilliance too blinding, too perfect to bear up. Such dresses are not perfect forever, dating or wearing away over the years, but while they last and while they fit, we feel in them as though we could tilt the world. My own dress, a filmy grey silk, knee-length with luminous yellow piping all over, slanted pockets low at each hip, a neckline sinking across the chest, hangs in darkness, obediently awaiting it, awaiting a new awakening. The merest accidental touch of it triggers a cascade of associations, summer birthdays and a bicycle, the city I live in on a sunnier day, the glossy hair and the smaller, slighter body I found myself slowly recovering into after a debilitating illness, a body that I won't have forever, but which I have now and which lives in a particular way only in that particular dress. After everything the violence of the gaze, the fragmentation of the body, the history of injury and constraint, there is this. If the body, wrote Simone de Beauvoir, is not a thing, it is a situation, it is our grasp on the world and the outline for our projects. How women dress their bodies is the project of possibility. Women's clothes can be elusive and evocative, serious, parodic or playful. Dresses solicit the gaze and subject us, but they are the surface, too, for the soul of a woman. In these surfaces, women reflect on what they understand of themselves and how they wish to be understood by others. Perhaps there is no garment equal to who we are, no fold, no cut, no gaze, no look, that could have the measure of this. But the challenge of dress is only to seek out the truths of the body, its variegated surfaces and sensations, the brute fact of biology and the infinitely different ways we experience it this body which we cannot escape and which we clothe to meet the world.
1: Beautiful wonderful uh, and a real example of the different kind of aspects that you can weave together and those different your own thoughts and your own experience but also those wider readings and applications you also write with great verve about the suit and its role in defining different kinds of masculinity um as an example you give the slick suited keanu reeves and the john wick <laughs> films um and then you contrast i know where you're asking <laughs> this <those. laughs> <laughs> you can't tell me anything so i end up putting it in an interview. Um, Um, in contrast to the schlubby polyester of Ricky Gervais in the office Um, so with Keanu Reeves there's this implication that the clothes he wears and his characters have kind of embedded into your understanding of that of him as a person, um, and I believe he's a bit of a style icon for you, Yeah. Kim and that and you him. recently got hit to meet him. Yeah. as um, so didn't. I was interested in Have that. I told
0: you all. K- I got yeah. to meet Keanu
1: Reeves. <laughs> Um and I was interested in that as kind of almost a philosophical or almost literary experience of analysing <laughs> someone and their dress and the character that it enables them to build versus real life meeting, real life interaction, and yeah. what was he wearing and what did that make you feel?
0: Yeah, yeah. I got to meet Keanu Reeves this year. I don't know if I mentioned it to you
1: all. So Times on Twitter.
0: Um, uh, yeah, I have to admit that it wasn't a philosophical experience, that my response was Shame. quite base in lots of ways. Um, but I have been lo- in love with Keanu Reeves since I was 12, and I got to interview him for Front Row. Actually, there's a producer, several so producers from Front Row here. And um, they said, oh, do you want to come in and interview Keanu Reeves for the programme? And I was like, hell yes. <laughs> I, think, I think the producer, Tim, who's not here, he said to me, I just had a feeling that you might be the person for this job. And I was like, (laughs) I do not have to revise for this interview (laughs) really. I have seen I'd seen both of the John Wick films, which for even for devoted Keanu Reeves fans, that is Real devotion. <laughs> in both of the John Wick films, and yeah, and, and I—I'm old enough to be in love with the Keanu from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I'm not even the Matrix generation. Um, and I do. So Harper's Bazaar interviewed me recently, and they said, "What's your, you know, who's your style icon?" And I should have said, you know. I don't know. I should have said Cara Delevingne, or I should have said you know someone, you know I don't know someone was serious else Scaparelli. I should have said you know something dig, with dignity, but I said no. Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> because he wears that black leather waistcoat and those baggy shorts, and he just is Keanu, like that vision of him looking doleful outside the circle K when the time machine lands. It's just seared into my memory. But when I met him, he... I mean, he was not disappointing because I I said to my.
1: (laughs) There's your lead quote. (laughs) I'd
0: said to my husband that morning, who's very handsome and here, I love you, Craig. But (laughs) that morning, I said to him, I just packed my bag and I said, "This is it. I'll see you. It's been lovely (laughs) knowing you. I won't be back." And I actually thought that something might happen between
1: me and Kianni, so
0: I was disappointed that nothing.
1: Did happen. That's still time.
0: In his head. But But he definitely has. The room feels different when he walks into it. I mean, I think it's the first time I've met somebody with that kind of celebrity power. Like, vibrations ripple from him. And he has a very... He was wearing like a... A black blazer with a very thin pinstripe, and one of those slightly gothy me- metal t-shirts. Um, and he had very bad shoes, I remember. And he sort of had <laughs> slightly lank hair, and he, but like incredibly sort of otherworldly. Um, and he 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 has the the manner of a kind of submissive gorilla because he doesn't want to make eye contact with you because he's too powerful. Um, I think that's true. And you're constantly trying to... Um, and I, but I had the most undignified moment, talking about dignity, I had the most <laughs> undignified moment of my life with him. I had this really good interview, trying to get under his skin, quite hard to get under his skin because he's been interviewed 50 million times. But at the end, I thought it was all going really well. At the end of the interview, I really let myself down because then I was like, Keanu, I'm just going to give you a copy of my book because you're in it. And Because um, and there is a line about the John Wick suit and how um, in, invincible the John Wick suits are. And, uh, and he did that really polite celebrity thing where he took the book and quietly handed it to the, the PR person oh. behind him. <laughs> you're like, oh, I was just so mortified myself in front of him. But yeah, he's, he's a style icon, and yeah, I hope you all get to meet him too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so within that, I rather cruelly made you give us some rather personal accounts of that yes. experience and that connection. Um, each chapter within the book also opens with an autobiographical account, and I found that really striking in comparison to the philosophical um, and kind of literary and cultural quotations that I'll mention again in a moment. Um, was it important to you by the very nature and the kind of physicality and sensuality you've described with the subject to include mm. those personal perspectives? And also I'd like to know how that's been as an experience, because I can imagine it's been quite exposing in some ways to be explicitly talking about yourself.
0: Yeah. Was it important? Um, I think at the beginning of the book, I talk about um, how um, that I can't talk about clothes without talking about the life of the wearer. And that was the dilemma I was wrestling with throughout the writing of the book, that I wanted to talk about clothes at arm's length, almost. I wanted you to be inside the clothes, to think about your own experience, to remember what it's like to put on that winter coat, what it feels like to run your hand through fur, what a suit does to you, and all of those things. But I didn't want to tell you about my life. Mm. And then I thought that that was a hypocrisy, and that in some way I have to bare my soul, show some skin, mm. which is what those memoir ish vignettes are. Um, and they were really painful to write, really hard to write. I don't know that I did them very well because I'm not that kind of a writer. Um, but I also n- know that part of the argument of the of the book. I think I could have written a book up that was a memoir about my life in clothes. I think other people are doing that and have done that really well. I find them very engaging. But I think your own experience of clothes can only go so far. It's important to you in a particular way. Mm. It's not necessarily important to everybody else. And. One of the things I wanted to argue in the book, which I think is different from other books, is that we hide in clothes, that our clothes aren't just about our own memories and our own experience, that very often there are things that we're trying not to say in our clothes. I know that all the time, that there are things about myself and my life that are things that I never want to display outwardly. Um, and in, in a way, the, the only things that you have for yourself privately are the things that you don't display, mm-hmm. the opposite of your clothes in a way, but like your clothes are an attempt to shield and disguise you. And I wanted to write about that as a way of living in clothes too, <laughs> hiding in clothes. So you get some skin, but mm-hmm. not all the skin. And it was really painful, really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I think that might be quite a nice note to kind of draw a close to, actually, that I've kind of drawn out different elements of the ways in which you've exposed clothes and their feelings and meanings and emotions, but also <laughs> re- referencing the title of the book, The Secret Life of, the, of Clothes, and the fact that actually sometimes they tell us less than we would originally think when we go in. So thank you. That was absolutely beautiful. Please uh, join me in thanking Shahida, and we can go and toast our success. <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> it's lovely to do this.